Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Carpe diem, seize the day. That is the battle cry that has become popular over the last number of decades. Maybe it's due to high school Latin classes reading about the Roman Republic turned empire. The lyric poet Horace wrote the phrase in one of his odes a couple of decades before Christ. The 1980s film, Dead Poet Society, rekindled the saying as a way to live one's life. The main figure in that movie, as an English teacher in a private boys' school, championed the saying. The teacher, in an unorthodox teaching style, encouraged the boys in his class to pursue their life dreams by seizing the day. The saying is not consistent with the Christian's life of faith. With the faith defined in this morning's letter to the Hebrews and the priority given to life in the kingdom of God in the gospel according to St. Luke, we can learn why seize the day might not be a good battle cry for Christians. To accomplish this, let us examine what kind of faith is defined in the letter to the Hebrews and learn what priority membership in God's kingdom is brought to us by that faith. What is faith? Where ought it to be placed? And of what benefit and purpose is the faith for Christians? Let's seize the day in a good way. For this morning's purposes, our letter to the Hebrews is defining faith for the individual believer. We easily see from the key figures listed in Hebrews, from Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, that the faith of individuals is featured. They're all individuals. At the same time, there is a universal application of one definition. All these key figures that we just heard of Israel's history possess the gift of the same faith. They gave a kind of universal response to God. And isn't that faith? Man's response to God's words. These heroes of Israel's religion are listed because their actions revealed that their faith was, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We learn that faith in God includes belief, action, and has a future completion. Take Abraham, one of the key leaders of the nation of Israel, with whom God made a covenant. Abraham, by faith, followed God's words that Abraham's son would be his heir and his inheritance would be a nation of people so numerous 
they would be like stars for numbers. God directs Abraham, look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Even though Abraham did not live to see this future consummation of God's promise to him, because Abraham was given the grace of faith in God's works, God's words, he was made righteous. He was justified by faith. Faith in God is the same now. Our faith is placed in God. We take an action resulting from that faith, and the belief is fulfilled somewhere down the road. All of those shining examples of believers based on faith are rewarded for their faith when they reach the homeland that they are seeking. Remember, the letter to the Hebrews teaches us, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. He exists, and he rewards those who seek him. When I read that, I'm reminded I was trying to come up with an example in the present day, and I'm reminded through this type of faith of the way we Christians are to approach the scriptures or the sacrament of Holy Communion. We come to those keystones of God's revelation to us with the same kind of faith as Abraham, don't we? When we come to the Bible, we come believing that it's the Word of God. We present ourselves at the altar rail, believing that Christ comes to us in his body and blood. When we do, by God's grace, we approach the scripture, the sacred presentations, we are like Abraham, reckoned as righteous and thrown forward to a time of perfect salvation. The whole purpose of the scriptures and the whole purpose of the sacrament is salvation. Now we've defined this virtue of faith, but what about where it ought to be placed? How is our faith directed? Jesus's parable of the rich fool and Jesus' instructive examples of how God sustains the things of his creation, help us here. When you read all of chapter 12 in Luke's gospel, you get that parable of the rich fool. And then you hear about how Jesus says God's creation is sufficient unto itself. According to the actions of the rich man in the parable, our possessions in this world that our possessions in this world is just the place not to place our faith. You see, the rich man had plenty of goods and grain to last for years. So he tore down his barns, built larger ones to store all that he had so he could take his leisure. He could eat, drink, and be merry. The problem was his planning was for the world and its possessions. And his life was to end that night. 
So it was of no use. The Gospel tells us, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The possessions of this world are secondary to what is rich toward God. What we have in this world is necessary to meet the needs of this world, but they are secondary to what we need to live in the next world. God provides what we need when we need it. Jesus gives a second lesson beyond the parable of the rich fool. He explains the way that God has provided all of his creation, and that provision is not just adequate, it's balanced and it's beautiful. Jesus shows a kind of satisfaction, a kind of contentment, a relief that Christians ought to have about worldly material created things. The ravens have enough to eat without working. Lilies are more beautiful than Solomon and all that he had. Even the grass that is so plentiful has its provision as it goes through its cycle of growth and death and rebirth. We are worth at least that, says Jesus. So let God's world, as, you have, as you're a part of it, be the way that it's supposed to be and your possessions as a means to prepare for citizenship in God's kingdom. Not in the part that's here, but where he wants us to be after this life is over. Jesus leaves his teaching about the possessions and anxiety about life in this world with the instruction, here it is, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be yours as well. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why? What purpose? We've defined the faith. We've said where it ought to be placed. To what end? Because the ultimate end and purpose of our faith is life in the kingdom, but on another shore. We are to use the time in this part of God's kingdom to prepare for life where he truly wants us to be. Our lives are not intended to be lived to be lived only for what will happen immediately, or as if this world and the things in it are all that there is. We are not to seize the day. That cry from Horace, the Roman poet, is not what we are taught by our Lord. With faith in God, prepare for the kingdom. That is the benefit and the purpose of faith for the Christian. When the grace of faith, with the grace of faith, we make choices now that will have us live well in the kingdom. We use the possessions that we have for our lives here. But the Lord says, make sure you give alms of your possessions. That's because when we do that, we are reaching outside of ourselves to others of the faithful. Be like the servants who are always ready for the master to come. And when he does come, 
He will serve us. Do not seize this day. Seize the day when the Lord comes for our lives or when he comes to take his church to its homeland. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.